According to this, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me as we get started in Philippians chapter 3. We are reviewing the completed series of uh, Philippians. We have done all four chapters. We've done every verse. But this is uh, a recap to go back over what we've already covered. All right. One last attempt here. No. That is so strange. We'll just go without a uh, screen. How about that? Maybe next hour it'll cooperate. All right, it's not worth getting carnal over. Let's open a word of prayer. Ask our Father for his faithfulness to, uh, to guide our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, thankful for your faithfulness, Father, rejoicing that day by day, moment by moment, there's never a day that you decide to quit working. You, uh, you're always there, and you're always faithful. We ask for your blessings upon our time of study today. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Looking at the upward way in uh, pressing on the upward way, verses 12 and following, basically 12 through 16, here in Philippians chapter 3. We um, left off on Wednesday uh, recapping the uh, issue here in verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so that's what I want to pick up here this morning, kind of recap that a little bit, and then move on to the upward way emphasis in verses 12 through 16. Remember, the, uh, this is part of Paul's rethinking. This is part of Paul's adjustment to the church age as he is identifying God's grace and identifying everything that applies in the church age. As he counts those things that had previously been profit, he moves them over to the lost category and, and says that there's a whole new way of, of looking, not just the contrast between a believer and an unbeliever. That's huge. I mean, that's infinitely different. But then within the context of an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer, there is a, is a con- uh, contrast as well that becomes quite significant. And so Paul had to recycle all of his Old Testament theology in light of the realities of the church age, the, the new position in Christ. And so when he talks about this, In verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And that's bigger than just getting saved. We come to know Christ when we're saved, of course, but then it's we keep on knowing him more and more and more uh, as we grow, as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so growth in knowledge is kind of self-evident that you know him more, you know him better in, uh, in that capacity. And you want to gain Christ. You have the uh, expression there in verse 8, I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, to be found in him. Verse 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. 
And so here is a believer that's rapture ready. Here is a believer that's intimate with the Lord, that's walking in grace. And we have the, uh, the expressions here. Now, when he talks about that degree of intimacy that we all want to attain to, everyone in this room, I would assume, wants to reach this intimacy with Jesus Christ, to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That means that we are, we are maturing, we are rapture ready. Then he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this is uh, the puzzle, and this is the puzzling verse that's caused uh, no shortage of debate and theological discussion, journal articles, and different things back and forth. Because this sounds, at, uh, at a surface level, part of it's the translation, it sounds at a surface level that Paul is, is hoping to be resurrected someday, right? And that's strange. In fact, that's ludicrous, okay? In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, now, raise your hand if you think you're never going to be resurrected, ever, right? Nobody thinks that. No born-again believer thinks that. See, everybody is resurrected. Believers are resurrected to glory. Unbelievers are resurrected. Even, you know, the worst unbeliever that ever walked this earth will be resurrected someday because he's going to stand before the great white throne and, and bend the knee and confess. So all of humanity has a future resurrection, and no one, certainly no one with doctrine, should um, question that or should ponder if perhaps you may attain to that. Okay, so that can't be, clearly, that can't be what this is referring to. And so we took the time to actually break it down and to see it, I can't show you on the screen, but to, uh, to see it in the Greek, that this is not the normal word for resurrection. It's not anastasis, Right? You ever know anybody named Anastasia? Okay, Jesse Acosta's daughter is the only one I've ever known. But if you've known anyone named Anastasia, Anastasis is the Greek noun for a resurrection. And that's what the name means. And so uh, Anastasis is the, the typical word. And it's used many, many times, including right here in this context, it's used in verse 10. The power of his Anastasis. The power of his resurrection. But in, then in verse 11, when he says, if perhaps I may attain... He switches to a compound. He switches to ex anastasis. He puts an ex, uh, an exo prefix in front of anastasis. And it becomes unique. It becomes very unique. It's the only place anywhere in the New Testament that ex anastasis occurs. And so you might think of it with the ex exo, like an exit. You might think of it as the out resurrection. See? The out resurrection. And then that sparks more questions. Well, what's an out resurrection compared to the normal resurrection? See. And so my conclusion and others, many, have concluded that this is actually a reference to the rapture. That the ex-anastasis is a technical term that specifically references the rapture of the church. That the rapture of the church is a unique resurrection unlike any other resurrection because the living generation that's alive at that time, if perhaps we remain until that event, then it's the only resurrection that, that does not require death. That it's an out-resurrection because we, are, we get out of the dying process. We get out of the death experience, the death event. And so, particularly coming from the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul said, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And so for those that have died in Christ, 
they're resurrected, of course, at the rapture. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain. Not everyone has to die. But we will be resurrected without dying. And that's, that could be thought of as an out-resurrection. An ex-anastasis. That is, to be resurrected without dying. And that's the conclusion here. I was going to read and put up on the screen for you. It's easier to read than to listen to. But there was a... Uh, Schaefer Seminary Journal article uh, written by uh, Earl Rodmacher that actually addressed this event. And Earl uh, was actually, is a much longer article than the clip I'm going to read, but he's centering on the doctrine of imminency and what a joy it is for the body of Christ that you and I function under the concept of imminency, which means that the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. It could happen any day, any hour of any day. It could happen right now. And that sense of imminency, just, don't, just because it's been 2,000 years, doesn't make it any less imminent. It's just as imminent as it's always been. It's always been imminent since the rapture mystery was unveiled to the apostles. The moment that it was unveiled to the apostles, it was given as an imminent expectation. All right? And so this is uh, what we're looking at here, under imminency. And like I say, it's a long article. Um, it's available on the website. If you just go to Schaefer.edu and, and do a Google search on that website, you can, uh, you can find it because all the journal articles are there. Let me just read the, the snippet that he talks about um, in imminency. Because he says, uh, Longing for the parousia of Christ, which is certain to come, yet not afraid of death, which may possibly come first, is then the characteristic attitude of each generation of Christians. What a statement right? And so we get to be the, the uh, we get to be, we're the only stewardship that gets to be living our, our spiritual walk, serving the Lord day by day with the expectation that we might not die. <laughs> Think about it, in the history of humanity, everybody, everybody dies, right? The expectation of all humanity is you live, you die. And so we're all waiting to die, except church-age believer priest with the expectation of the rapture as an imminent event. We are the only humans to ever walk this earth that can say we might not die because today may be the day that Christ returns. So uh, longing for the prusy of Christ, which is certain to come, yet not afraid of death, which may possibly come first, is then the characteristic attitude of each generation of Christians. This understanding of Paul's eager anticipation of the imminent return of the Lord seems to throw light on two rather difficult passages. Again, this is a reading from Earl Rodmacher in the Schaefer Seminary Journal. One of these is Philippians 3.11, what we're looking at here this morning. If perhaps, if by any means, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Literally translated, the last words read, the out-resurrection out of the dead. There are a number of possible suggestions for the meaning of the resurrection here, namely the general resurrection, the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection, the attainment of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, a partial rapture. See, some people use this verse to defend the partial rapture theory that not every believer gets raptured, only the winners, that uh, the loser Christians get stuck, left behind here to, to endure the tribulation. There's all, see, that's why it's a difficult text. It's a difficult text, and a lot of bad theology has pointed to this text to justify their bad theology. A partial rapture, also the rapture of the church. Several factors strongly support 
as Rodmacher says here, a combination of rapture and consequent reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And then he goes on to show the context and the uncertainty of the if by any means, and then the uh, the nature of the ex, um, the hapax legomenon that we have here of the ex anastasis. Our conclusion then is that the eschatology of the context, that's the whole chapter of Philippians chapter 3, uh, the uncertainty with expectancy of the text, the hapax legomenon of the ex anastasis, all of these together give strong support to the idea that it was Paul's eager anticipation that the rapture might take place at any moment and that he might therefore remain alive until the rapture and thus be translated. And I agree. I agree with his conclusion. I agree with the reasoning that brought him to that conclusion. I came through the same reasoning to the same conclusion. And really, not only here in John, in, I'm sorry, in uh, our citizenship is in heaven in verse 20, Philippians 3.20, <clears throat> from which also we eagerly wait. Paul always gave rapture information in the first person plural. He always spoke of the rapture in a we attitude, Right? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Or the dead in Christ will rise first. He talked about the dead in Christ in the third person, and then he said, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Always, Paul always included himself amongst the rapture generation. All right, and so we have the, uh, the thing there. All right, so let's move on then, verses 12 through 16. Pressing on the upward way. The passage begins with Paul's negative affirmation. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And so in the expectation that the rapture could come today, Paul says, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready, right? I'm not sure I'm ready. We need to get ready and stay ready all day, every day. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Jesus had a reason why he grabbed hold of you. There's a reason why he died on the cross. There's a reason why he provided you with eternal life. He has a purpose for your life. And that's what this speaks of here. Paul has not yet achieved the objectives of verses 9 and 10, nor is he, and he is not as of yet prepared for the rapture. You know, as much as I wanted to happen to last night, um, in a way, you know, the silver lining to it not happening last night is the fact that I get one more day to prepare. I get one more day to grow. I get one more day to bear fruit. One more day to lay at least a little bit more treasure up there. Some gold, silver, and precious stones that can, uh, you know, in place of all the wood, hand, stubble that I know that I've stacked up there over the years. All right, so uh, some some subpoints under this as we broke down the vocabulary of lombano for taking or receiving. Um, Context uh, understands the the taking. There's no object. And he says, not that I've already obtained, not that I've already lombanoed. And you search the verse to find an object for the verb lombano, and there isn't one. And so it has to be supplied by the context of what led up to it in verses 9 through 11. Not that I've already obtained the uh, the readiness for the rapture of the church or have already been perfected being perfected equals gaining christ found in him rapture ready that's what we all should be striving for to be to gain christ to win christ to be found in him 
and to be rapture ready. That's the definition of perfection. And that's why we're growing this morning. That's why you came to Bible class, so that you can be built up in the faith and strengthened in the inner man, so that you can gain Christ, be found in Him, and be rapture ready. But then he says, I press on. I press on. Okay? What we stressed as we studied this was the, uh, the active agency of the effort, the fact that it requires effort, the fact that it is a conscious decision, that it's not just an automatic thing, that if you're just rambling aimlessly through the Christian walk and you think that you might just accidentally stumble into, the, into perfection, that's not going to happen. That it's actually an endeavor, that you're striving, that you're pushing you're like the, the, the track uh, runner that's approaching that finish line. And what does he do? He le- lunges forward. He's leaning forth because he's so close to that second place runner that whoever is able to stretch forth uh, at the right moment sooner than the other guy is going to be the one that crosses that, that finish line. And so that's the effort we should be pouring into reaching forward to what lies ahead. So I press on. And th- under other circumstances, the Greek verb dioko means to persecute. To persecute, and I don't recommend that we start persecuting other people, but if you've ever seen it, or if you've ever read about it, or uh, you just know the fact that persecution requires active effort, that uh, the act of persecuting, the act of being persecuted, you realize that the persecutors spend an awful lot of time and energy and effort in bringing about the harm to the people that they're persecuting. And uh, for whatever, whatever satanic motivation they have to persecute, they seem to have that. And so they, uh, they, they have a lot of fervency. And it's curious to me that the, our adversaries have a lot more fervency than we have in a lot of cases. Why, uh, why are they so energized to persecute believers walking in truth when it seems that many believers walking in truth are not nearly so energized to press on to the upward, the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so the effort to press on. Reading here from uh, Philippians 3 and uh, verse uh, 12 or verse 13. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Uh, not that I've already obtained it, already become perfect, but I press on. That takes effort. Pressing on, like the, we sing uh, higher ground. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. If you're not at a new height today compared to yesterday, then you're not pressing on. And tomorrow you should be on another height. Tomorrow you should pr- continue to press on, learn more, grow more, apply more. That's what pressing on is all about. All right. I would show you a Logos color wheel at this point, but I don't have a projector this morning. All right. <laughs> pray. Maybe next hour it'll decide at work. All right. If I may even lay hold of, again, we've got a uh, eris subjunctive. We've got the potential mood. We have the purpose for pressing on. The purpose for pressing on is for the purpose of grabbing hold of something. And it's spoken of in the subjunctive mood because it's the language of potential. It's not the language of automatic. It's not the language of reality that those who press on lay hold of. Those who do not press on do not lay hold of. It's not, uh, it's not a, a modern, liberal, everybody gets a trophy kind of thing. Jesus uh, only gives the overcomer rewards to the overcomers. The pressing on prize to the, to the pressing honors. All right? The pressers, the folks who press on. 
So if you don't, then you don't. If you don't press on, then you don't lay hold of. That's, uh, that's undeniable, grammatically, theologically. That I may even lay hold of, katalamano. That for which also I was laid hold of. And so, really, it's a nice play on words because he uses the same vocabulary when he says, I want to lay hold of this because Jesus laid hold of me. Jesus laid hold of me. And that's, uh, that's a marvelous truth as well. This is uh, another way to kind of think through the positional reality and then make it a experiential realization. The fact, the fact is, Jesus has laid hold of me. That's a completed action. That's done. He paid for my sins on the cross. He has delivered me out of the domain of darkness. He has transferred me into the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ. And so, I, you know, he laid hold of me. Why did he lay hold of me? He had a reason for why he laid hold of me. God does nothing for no reason. Everything he does is after the counsel of his will. Everything he does is for his good pleasure. Everything he does is for the accomplishment of his eternal purpose in Christ. And so um, we have the, the blessings of this truth. Why did God lay hold of me? And uh, in, in many cases, this doctrine can wake up a believer if he's walking in darkness. I can illustrate with my own personal season of darkness that uh, at a certain age that uh, it just woke up. And it was on my 20th birthday at uh, 2 in the morning. <laughs> and I remember uh, thinking, wait a minute. And you know what, what hit me was the number 20. The number 20 hit me across the side of the head like a two by four because it was a number that didn't have teen attached to the end of it. 17, 18, 19. And then I woke up and I wasn't 10 teen, right? The teens were gone. The teens were gone. And now all of a sudden it's a new decade. Now all of a sudden it's, oh, 20. And that, that number is rolling around in my, in my head that the teens are gone. And you know what else needs to be gone? Is all the stupid things that, that I was doing. All right? That needs to go away. That needs to go away too. That if not now, when? And if I don't grow up sometime, I may not live long enough to grow up. So how about, uh, how about humbling myself and repenting and and what really hit was this verse here, or concepts like, I don't know if it was this exact verse, but the fact is, Jesus laid hold of me. Why? Okay? He didn't save me for this lifestyle. He didn't save me for this, you know, He didn't send His Son. God the Father did not send His Son to die on the cross so that I could do all those dumb idiot things I was doing as a teenager. Okay? With copious amounts of alcohol and everything else involved. That's not why he saved me. In fact, he could have kept his son in heaven and left me, abandoned me to that kind of thing. In, uh, and that's not the purpose for why he grabbed me. And so it sparked a repentance. It sparked a, uh, uh, an escape from the reversionism. It sparked not only that was I able to return to fellowship and walk in the light and grow, but at the very same time, you know what else started to happen? I started to get convicted of my spiritual gift. I started to get convinced that not only was, did he lay hold of me to be a believer, but he laid hold of me to be a pastor. 
saying. And so these are the kind of things that, that we look at. All right. Why did he lay hold of me? Why did he lay hold of me? Understand, when God the Father gives a born-again believer to Jesus Christ, he lays hold of that believer and he never lets go. He never lets go. You know, John 6. Let's turn there in John 6. And then from John 6 to John 10. But John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And so one of the things that's true of our salvation status is the fact that when you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you become a gift from the Father to the Son. Now this is a a transaction that happens between the Father and the Son. And so all that the Father gives me will come to me. And that's a promise. All right? And this is a promise. And when you come to Christ, it's because the Father has drawn you and the Father is now giving you to the Son. And so you come to Christ. It says, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Eternal security, I'm telling you, when you come to Christ, there is never anything. God himself can't cast you out. You can't cast yourself out. There is uh, no created thing or thing present or thing to come. There's no power or principality. You are in Christ, a gift from the Father to the Son, and held eternally secure. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing not even one, but raise it up on the last day. You remember the parable of the, of the 90 and 9? In one lost sheep, what does he do? He goes out and he gets that one lost sheep because he cannot lose even one. To do so would be in defiance of, of God the Father. When would Jesus Christ ever be in defiance of God the Father? Understand that. If you're going to defend an Arminian theology, if you're going to be a Methodist or whoever that still holds to... Uh, um, Free Methodist or Nazarene or any of these groups that preach a, an Arminian soteriology. In other words, if you teach that you can lose your salvation, like the Russian Baptists teach, okay? If you teach that, you then have to defend the, the uh, principle or the concept that Jesus Christ can deny the Father. Wow. Good luck defending that. Because if Jesus Christ could defend the Father, guess what? He'd have never gone to the cross. I mean, logically, if Jesus Christ could defy God the Father, then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have gone a different direction. He'd have said, not your will, my will be done. I'm out of here. I'm not going to that cross. The fact is, he said, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus is not capable of defying God the Father. So this is the will, again, John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose not even one but raise him up on the last day. And so uh, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That's salvation by grace through faith and eternal security in Jesus Christ right there. All right. Now keep in mind, when, when the Father hands us to the Son, he doesn't actually let go. We're in joint custody, if you will. John chapter 10 
John chapter 10. And so, this is uh, the Feast of the Dedication took place. Verse 23, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. (laughs) I mean, seriously? How many times has he been telling them this? The fact that they're acting like he never said it shows you, I think, their willful uh, disbelief. He says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So he had verbally told them and then he had uh, illustrated by doing the miracles that he did that he was the Christ. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Again, you want to hold an Arminian view? You've got to overcome this verse. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So the whole idea that you can be such a terrible sinner that you can wrench yourself from the grip of Jesus Christ. No, you are held in the grip of the Lamb. Then not only that, but you're in the Father's hand as well. Because my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so the imagery is we're held in both hands, the Father and the Son. Because the Son, the Father gave us to the Son, the Son took hold of us, but the Father never let go. So now we're held in both hands, right? Like your little toddler that's walking around here, right? And if you have, it might be that, that mom has one hand and it might be that dad has the other hand. And so he's held firm in two hands. That's kind of a nice imagery, actually. I think the psalm says if he stumbles, he will not fall headlong, for the Lord lifts him up. The Lord holds his hand. Okay? And uh, what, a, what a treasure. And then we have that imagery, and I can just imagine, you know, those of you with toddlers can illustrate this for us. You get these dangling, limp, kind of loose children that, that they don't fall headlong because the parents are holding those hands. And then you get them stable, back on their feet again, and here we go learning how to walk. So we have security in Christ. He also lays hold of the believer for a specific race, course, and purpose. A specific race, course, or purpose. And depending on the passage, you've got a different metaphor there, but the principle is still the same. It's either the race, run with endurance, the race set before you, or it's uh, David after he finished the purpose, served the purpose of God in his generation, Uh, Or it's described as a course. I have finished the course. So either a race, a course, a purpose. uh, All of that imagery speaks to the same exact truth. That when he saved you, there was a purpose. All right? And this is the the ultimate purpose-driven life, I think, that uh, what's-his-name was trying to drive at when, when, yeah, Rick Warren, when you're getting there. The fact is that we are created in Christ for good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right? I think we know the passages, but let's look. First of all, Acts thirteen thirty six. Acts thirteen thirty six. 
And this is uh, the genius of Paul as he's preaching this. Luke is recording it. And uh, in case you have a bad theology that misapplies uh, Psalm 16, um, Paul's going to fix that for you. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Well, that was not a promise for David the person. That was a promise for the son of David, Jesus Christ, in its uh, fulfillment. And um, Paul is able to preach quite confidently that David is in fact dead and that he is in fact buried and that he did in fact decay and his tomb is with us to this day. But it says, uh, David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So there's a contrast between David and Jesus there, and we get that. But the first part of that verse, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation. Oh, I tell you, that's, that's vital. David did what no one else could do. Solomon did what no one else could do. Solomon did what David wanted to do, but it wasn't David's generation that was assigned to do it. It was Solomon's generation that was assigned to do it. See, same thing with our generation. You know, I have moments that I wonder, man, why, <laughs> why am I not older? Why couldn't I have pastored? I mean, because I remember the heyday in the in the. 70s, even before that, the late 60s. I remember when, when Colonel Thiem was at his peak and when the, the, the 69 basics and the, the power of, of, of the Word of God, when there was a hunger for doctrinal teaching, when churches like this were filled Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, hungry believers coming to be fed in Bible class and uh, morning services, evening services. And you think, wow, okay? Now, I'm not going crazy with that or it's you know you can be a slave to the past in the 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 bygone days and whatever but you still wonder all right so colonel theme served the purpose of god in his generation and that's what it was and now it's complete and now generations have followed and guess what there's going to be generations that follow us trumpet pending if the rapture doesn't come first and so we need to make sure that we're doing what we're called to do that we are where He wants us, that we're doing what He has for us to do. And it may be a very dark assignment where we don't have the positive volition. We've got the greater apostasy than ever before. We've got, we've got to deal with diminished appetites. We've got to deal with a remnant. We've got to deal now where uh, our theology is not only is it marginalized, but it then becomes um, outcast because the liberal theology is taking over. And now they openly mock it in their, in their journals. That we're, the, we're the, the hateful, primitive Bible thumpers that still hold to penal substitutionary uh, atonement. <laughs> I just read it this past week. Penal substitutionary atonement is not biblical. It's wrong. Get rid of it. And, and, they've, they, and we're, the, we're the dinosaurs that still cling to that. See? Sad. But there we are. Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There we go. 
Understand, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Notice, who's the we here? Everybody. Every born-again believer in the church age. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The course of our Christian walk is laid out in the divine decrees. It's laid out in the predetermined plan of God. And so there it is. Every work assignment, every, every uh, thing from uh, salvation to departure, either physical death or rapture, from the cross to the crown, every assignment has been planned by God. He didn't just grab hold of you for no reason. You're a tool in His hand. And God knows how to use tools. Isn't that amazing? I don't know how to use tools. I could tell even more stories, but that's all right. I spent 45 minutes trying to get a light cover off my ceiling. Never could get it done. I even busted my knuckles trying to, you want to I'll show you my knuckles during the, the fellowship time. Trying to get this thing off the ceiling and it wouldn't come off. And I pushed and I twisted and I pulled and I... I was, I was getting ready just to yank the whole thing down and spark all kinds of electrical fires and whatever. And uh, King and Pettit came over and had it undone in 10 seconds. Literally, 10 seconds. All right. God is like Keegan, okay? God can use tools. And He knows what He's doing. And He uses the right tool for the right purpose. God never grabs a tool and then says, hmm, what am I going to do with this? He knows what he's going to do with this, and he knew it before he grabbed it. Because he doesn't grab it until he needs it. And then when he grabs it, when the tool is in his hand, it's because he means business. He's going to start using that tool for whatever it is that he needs that tool for. And so he's got a hammer to pound nails, he's got a screwdriver to turn screws. He's got, you know, I'll stop there. That's my tool knowledge. Other tools to do other things. And you are a tool. We are all tools in the hands of God. Created in Christ Jesus. And the best part is we are individual creations. See, it's not as, it's not like it's procreation where we're, you know, uh, parents that combine to make babies, we are individually created, custom creations. We are stones that are choice and precious in the sight of God, individual custom stones that fit just properly in this temple in a way that no other piece could fit. You know, we're not all square Lego blocks that all look the same and shaped the same, and we're all individually custom built. And only God could build a building like that, where every single piece of the puzzle is unique is different, but it fits together in a glorious way. And so that's Ephesians 2.10. Of course, there's Hebrews 12. Run with endurance the race that's set before us. And the example is given there because really um, a race is not the starting block. A race is not the first few feet. It's uh, the entirety of the race and the winner is assigned. The prizes are allotted on the basis of the finish line, not the starting block. And it's uh, 
tragic how many Christians have a great start. How many believers have a marvelous start, but they never reach the glorious finish. They suffer shipwreck with respect to their faith. The um, <clears throat> the blessings of preaching an ordination message, for example, for every Timothy and the positive examples you have of staying the course and staying faithful and, and serving as a, as a child, his father and all, every example of a Timothy that you have, how many Demas do you have? How many uh, that you have that are mentioned as suffering the shipwreck that have abandoned and gone different places? Hymenaeus, Alexander. How many that get named as men that started well and now where are they now? See, and so the, uh, the, the, the purpose of mentioning Timothy in ordination is the positive encouragement and reinforcement, but you also want to mention Demas and, uh, and Hymenaeus and Alexander and, and uh, the others that have uh, fallen short because that's the negative example that should serve as an admonishment in, uh, in everyone for their ministry. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and this and the sin which so easily entangles us. Something that will keep you from finishing your course are the encumbrances and the sin. So do away with them both. You've got the Holy Spirit so that you can uh, walk by means of the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That takes care of the sin issue. But then you have um, your own volition your own decision-making capacity, whereby you start to make better choices when you identify that these encumbrances may not rise to the level of sin, but these encumbrances are weighing you down. And that you would be running your course a lot more effectively if these encumbrances weren't weighing you down. And so you have things that you might choose to lay aside. Because you have then recategorized, as Paul recategorized, and take it from a, a plus column, move it to the minus column, and toss it. Decide, this is, this is hampering my fruitfulness. And I'm choosing to do away with it. Because it's hampering my fruitfulness. So laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Say again, it's not the starting block, it's the finish line, it's the perfection. Reaching forward to the perfection. Who for the joy set before him. You want an example? He's the example. Keep your eyes on the things above, keep your eyes in heaven. So, how Jesus did it, he set his eyes on the, the joy set before him. And he endured the cross, despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's our admonishment. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Just keep looking to Jesus. And whatever it is you're going through, (laughs) compared to what Jesus went through, are you kidding me? Why am I complaining? Why am I complaining? He endured, I can endure. And that's the point. We have the example to follow. All right. Back to Philippians 3. Paul says, This one thing, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That's two things. All right. 
Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this one thing, which is really two things, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. So this one thing is forget what's behind you, keep reaching forward to what's in front of you. That's the one thing. Regarding rapture-ready perfection, Paul's one thing he regards. Just this one thing. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind. Now, normally, the things you want to forget are typically the bad things. I, I don't, you know, forget, the, forget those uh, carnal teenage years. Forget those things, all right? Forget the mistakes of the past. Forget the failures of the past. Normally, uh, put those things out of your mind. But here, these are actually positive things that are being spoken of as forgetting what lies behind. And this is the other trap, is that believers can become complacent once they think that they've done enough. Once they think they've been good enough. Once they think they've, they've, uh, they've done their time. They've, uh, they've, they've laid up treasure in heaven. Somebody else's turn now. Isn't that enough? What more does he want from me? Well, you're not at the finish line yet, so it's not enough. Honestly, the answer is no, it's not enough. And what does he want from you? More. Okay, keep pressing on. Keep reaching forward. Excel still more. And so here, forgetting is actually to to forget the positive things. We can find negative examples of forgetting, and uh, we have them in Hebrews and James and 2 Peter. But this uh, this is a uniquely positive. Forget the positive things. Forget the positive things and keep pressing on. See, do we, uh, do we just think, well, that's, that's good enough, you know? Um, if, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, come on. Uh, if uh, we ordained Pastor Cliff and now he's pastoring in a church and we ordained Pastor Dan and now he's pastoring in a church, so um, isn't that enough? And uh, plus a couple others that didn't reach ordination, but they're trained and serving in, uh, in their capacity and may be ordained here shortly, like B3 or like um, uh, La Rosa or uh, Lewis, other examples. And so you start to think, well, that's enough, isn't it? But then a young man says, hey, could, do you think you could teach me Greek? All right, here we go again. <laughs> All right, let's forget what lies behind. Let's reach forward to what lies ahead. Let's keep reaching forward. Okay? Keep reaching forward. And it's exciting. It's exciting. I like seeing open doors. I like finding out that um, Randy, for example, has an invitation to speak in another church coming up. That's, that to me, I, that's, I eat that stuff up. Because that's reaching forward. That's looking forward. And that's what we're called to do. All right. Reaching forward. Um, obviously the imperative to forget is not absolute and it's not an isolation apart from other passages of Scripture. We have passages of Scripture that tell us to remember certain things and so we have to use those as a counterpoint, as a balance, so that we make proper application of the whole counsel of the Word of God. So we have uh, things that we're told to remember. Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their life, uh, their conduct, imitate their life. So there's a remember We've got other remember imperatives that are found. Um, Hebrews 10.32 has a remember. 
Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Remember those days. And so we have imperatives to remember. As I said in Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 and 13 have a remember imperative. I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly tent to stir you up by way of reminder. So reminders are a positive thing. It doesn't conflict with the imperative to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. It harmonizes beautifully when you put that forget imperative in its right context. Say. Anyway, so there's a good balance on that. If you want more on that, we taught it at some length. The idea of reaching forward, too. Here's a fun study. Reaching forward. That reaching forward imperative to reach forward like it's right there. It's so close. It's within your grasp. If, it's, if, you've, if you're so close to the point now that you could just reach out and grab it, then attitudinally, you're uh, in the right place where you need to be on the imminent basis of the rapture of the church. Just think that it's so close that it's so close you can grab it. And think about how that language of stretching forth your hand, it's an, it's an idiom, it's an expression, but to stretch out one's hand, it's actually an honor for us to be able to stretch out our hand. God himself stretches out his hand. And there's applications for this throughout the, throughout the scripture. Um, in, in the... Uh, decision to evict Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. The, the danger that as sinners, when God says they might stretch fo- uh, forth their hand to take from the fruit of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And that phrase is used there that Adam and Eve might stretch forth their hand. And that's interesting to me. It's the very first time that idiom occurs and it occurs throughout Old Testament, New Testament life. Uh, how about in Genesis 22? Because Abraham stretched out his hand. And what did he do? He took a knife. He stretched out his hand and he took a knife so that he could slay Isaac. And so stretching out one's hand is, is uh, the, the first two uses that we have there. We have the danger of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of life. We have the obedience of Abraham in faith willing to sacrifice his son. And, uh, and these are the, the context then for this expression. And, and to me, you know, I start to think to, to reach out, to lay hold of that for which also I was lay hold of means that I am stretching forth my hand as the Father has called me to do in my volitional obedience to his plan. Because he laid the course out but expects me volitionally to be obedient. He expects me to do the running because it's my course. He expects me to reach out and lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. It's left for us to, to reach out and grab it. Reach out and, uh, and take it. Come and take it, <laughs> if you will. Moses. Man, a dozen times or more, Moses was constantly stretching forth his hand and the Red Sea would part or um, a plague would hit, or something else would happen. Moses and Aaron repeatedly throughout 
the book of Acts, chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, I mean, all throughout. David stretched forth his hand. 1 Samuel 17, 49. And when David stretched forth his hand, you know what he was doing? He was reaching in, he was reaching for five smooth stones. (laughs) And he stretched forth his hand. Okay? The uh, angel of the Lord, by the way, stretched forth his hand over Jerusalem, and he was ready to devastate it. But David stood there at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, and pleaded and interceded and said, stop. And so the uh, judgment was stopped. I like that one. Second Samuel twenty four sixteen. Just the imagery on this. I, this is the, a deleted scene on DVD I want to see when we get to heaven. And hopefully they got the camera angle just right so that you can see it from the perspective of David himself standing there underneath the and so um, and in the consequence of this um, David's given choices 2 Samuel 24 12 go and speak to David thus the Lord says I am offering you three things choose for yourself one of them which I will do to you so Gad came to David and told him and said Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And in course, okay, so seven years, three months, three days, beyond the time consideration uh, are the nature of the punishment and the nature of other things. David makes his choice. He said, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence among Israel from morning until the appointed time. 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, there's our expression, The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. This is is where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. This is where the temple will ultimately be built. This threshing floor on Mount Moriah. Anyway, stretching forth your hand. We, We stretch forth our hands. We extend the right hand of fellowship. How about that? Church age action. The uh, stretching out of hands. The woman of excellence stretches out her hand in Proverbs 31. Jesus repeatedly stretches out his hand in his, uh, in his ministry. The focus of Paul's pressing forward is the goal of the prize of the upward call. The skapos, the bullseye of the prize, the braveon, the prize, to judge or to award prizes. We're going to have more of these prize studies coming up in Colossians because Colossians 3.15 has uh, the same expression that we have here in Philippians 3. We have a verb that's assigned in Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. That ruling is the um, judging or the assigning of prizes. So let the peace of Christ assign the prizes. Be the ruling judge of the prizes in your heart. 
We'll deal with that when we get to Colossians 3.15. But pressing on towards the prize. Now all of us collectively, we're all onward, we're all upward, we're all reaching the prize, singular prize, of the upward call. The upward call. Hey, come up here. That's an upward call. (laughs) Okay? When the Lord Himself descends with a shout, when we are caught up together with Him in the clouds, that's the upward call. And that's the prize. The great genuflex in the sky when we get to bow before our Lord and Savior. We are the only... You know, Israel had a calling. It wasn't an upward calling. Israel was a chosen nation. So there was an election and there was a calling for the Jewish people. But it was in the midst of other Gentile nations, in the midst of other nations that they were called. And they were separated, but they were separated as neighbors on this earth. We have an entirely different calling, an entirely different choosing, a different election, and ours is an upward call. Also, ours is a positional call in Christ Jesus. No prior stewardship and no subsequent stewardship has God the Father awarding prizes to a corporate body in Christ. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit in union with Jesus Christ. No Old Testament believer had that. No tribulational saint will have that. No millennial saint will have that. No fullness of time saint will have that. A thousand generations on the new earth will not be baptized into union with Christ. That is our role as the bride. That is our role as the bride. All right, goodness. Mature believers allow the Lord to demonstrate their wrong attitudes and they welcome every attitude adjustment. Philippians 3.15 As many of us as are perfect, as many of us as are being perfected, have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Day by day by day, our walk is constant attitude adjustments. Say, Father, if my attitude needs adjusting, if I'm not quite in step, then... uh, I'm the one that's out of step. God's never out of step. And so we need to walk according to this pattern. Let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. We keep living by the unchanging standard. The verb stoikeo is to be in line with, to conform. Stoikeo, if you've ever been in the military, you ever learned how to march. And you learn it's, it's left, right, left, right? Everybody, when it's left, everybody's on the same left. When it's right, everybody's on the same right. And you're in columns, and you're in rows, so you've got to be immediately behind the guy in front of you, and you've got to be exactly even with the guy to your left and your right, depending on what column you're in. I was always in first squad, so I was always on the far left, and everybody was to my right. But either way, that's marching in step. And if you're out of step, either out of alignment, left or right, or forward or back, or you're, you're on the right foot when everybody else is on the left foot, not a good thing. All right, and the and the and the man, the angry man in the brown hat is going to come yell at you very quickly to get you to make sure that you're in step. In the church age, that's Jesus Christ. He says you're out of step, private, and uh, thank God for his uh, for his discipline. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. Um, don't know why our projector quit working, but that's in your hands too, Father. Thank you for being faithful. I thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.